0: Hello and welcome back to the Sports Map Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Kane. This is the 17th episode, and today we'll be talking with sports physio Hamish McCauley around the traumatic shoulder. Now, as our regular listeners know, this is a podcast where we're talking all things sports medicine, physiotherapy, rehabilitation, and return to performance. And before we jump into today's chat, with Hamish. Uh, We've got a couple of updates around some of our courses. We have the advanced um, upper limb rehabilitation in sport course coming to the Gold Coast uh, at the end of October. And there's only limited places left, less than 15 spots as we're recording this podcast to jump on there and see a number of fantastic presenters, including Hamish, but across to Olympic physiotherapist recently in Tokyo from Andrew McGough, Kylie Holt and Phil Cousins, along with Bruce Rawson from Australian Baseball and a prominent surgeon from Brisbane. So it's going to be a fantastic course, plenty of practical content. So head over to the website to have a good look at that one. We've also just recently postponed our athletic groin pain symposium which was scheduled for uh, mid-october in sydney but due to what's going on over there in new south wales we postponed that to the 29th and the 30th of january in 2022 so we're really keen to keep that course really practical really hands-on so we're not going to go online with that we're going to postpone that until early next year so again there will be limited places but that obviously opens the door for a little bit more time before people need to jump on and, and register as mentioned, today's podcast guest is Hamish McCauley, and he's the Director of Elite Sports Rehab and Physiotherapy in Canberra. Hamish has an extensive experience working in sport and, and clinically. He has a number of past roles that include the Head Physiotherapist at the Geelong Cats in the AFL, as long as the Australian Rugby Union Team Lead Physiotherapist, and as well for the Brumbies Super Rugby Team. He holds a master's in sports and musculoskeletal physiotherapy and he has a really keen interest in the shoulder. So since he's been back in Canberra he's doing a lot of new things clinically at their their rehab facility there and this talk really takes us through I guess some management around the traumatic shoulder and we talk through a little bit more of the posterior dislocations and I guess Hamish it's great because he really applies both what some of that management strategy would be in an elite sports setting but also in a clinical setting. So I hope you guys enjoy the chat with Hamish. All right, so uh, Hamish, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Nick. It's great to be here. Now, before we jump in and talk a little bit around sort of the contact and traumatic shoulder and their rehabilitation, uh, you've worked in both AFL recently and a number of different teams within rugby. I want you to just tell our listeners a little bit about the, the differences between working in those sports, like what are the main differences as a physio that you found, most interesting things, biggest challenges, etc.?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, I guess it's a question I, I get asked a fair bit in, in either of the sports, but also by my patients because they're interested. Um, I think one of the big ones is just the demands on the body. Uh, when you look at AFL, it really is an incredible sport in terms of what they're supposed to do. So they've got to run, you know, between 10 and 15 Ks in a game. They've got to be powerful. They've got to have aerial sense. They've got to be skillful overhead. They've got to be able to kick and catch. Uh, and they've also they've got to be able to have repeat efforts. Uh, for a long period of time. So when you think about that and the nature of that game, you can see the types of injuries that you're going to get from that game uh, compared to rugby, which is a, you know, more of a, a power and collision sport uh, where a lot of the game is played either in front of you or you see what's happening compared to that 360 degree of AFL. Um, so I guess in, de- in terms of demands on the body uh, and the types of injuries that I thought were a little bit different in AFL, um, because of the running demands, you get more. I think you get more soft tissues uh, and you definitely get more overuse, so more uh, tendon overuse, uh, bone stress uh, and groin pain, uh, whereas in rugby you'd probably get more collision and impact-type injuries uh, and, and, and a fair mix of uh, ligament injuries in both of those sports. In terms of shoulders specifically, uh, the difference I think uh, with AFL you have a lot more overhead, um, and, and in terms of that 360-degree nature and spoiling and, and marking and those sorts of things and landing from, from big jumps... Compared to in rugby, it's more around the tackle, the poach, the boss, uh, and around that ruck situation that you see a lot of those shoulder injuries.
0: And if all things being equal, what would you, what would be your choice to work in? What would you go for, working in uh, AFL again or rugby?
1: Oh, look, I can't choose. I'm not going to divide myself into either camp. <laughs> I've, I've, I've had a great uh, and very fortunate career in, in both of them uh, and been fortunate to work with some fantastic people along the way. So uh, I've enjoyed them both... Uh, both equally, so I'd, I'd be happy to work in either.
0: Probably a very diplomatic answer. Now, yep. um, you're talking at the Upper Limb Rehabilitation in Sport course that we're running uh, in the Gold Coast. It's 30th and 31st of October of this year. What are a few things that we might be expecting to either see from you or learn from you at that course?
1: I'm going to be talking about the contact shoulder um, and implications for rehab exercises, especially probably the mid- and late-stage rehab. Um, which can often be a little bit tricky to navigate uh, in the clinic in the proper practice setting, and looking at, uh, I guess, the evidence around return to play markers, so some of the things that we're trying to look at uh, both in the clinic but also functionally for the shoulder.
0: Mate, so you mentioned in in footy, I guess, anterior dislocations of the shoulder, they're quite common and and can be pretty obvious when they happen. What about posterior dislocations, which, uh, you know, I believe are a bit more common in rugby? What are some telltale signs of these injuries?
1: Yeah, uh, I mean it's an interesting question. When you when you look at the literature, your posterior dislocations are, are quite low in in um, in relation to your anterior. In the literature, they say the sort of the, the the prevalence is about two to four um, percent. But when you see it in in terms of in the clinic and when you're working in sport, you definitely see more than that. Um, and you wonder if just that things are getting missed, maybe um, in the literature in the literature sense. Um, I mean, your classic anterior dislocation is the fall on the outstretched arm, scoring a try, or somebody. Um, contacting the back of the shoulder and forcing it out anteriorly. Um, Whereas uh, your posterior dislocation is more a fall um, onto a flexed or internally rotated arm with some adduction. Uh, And commonly in sport you see that um, where somebody falls onto an elbow in front of them. Um, And there's some pretty good footage of a a good posterior subluxation or dislocation mechanism in last year's grand final uh, in the AFL early on. Um, if anybody wanted to look that up, you'll you'll see a a fairly common way that people can um shear that 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 shoulder posteriorly.
0: Uh, well, remember that was a very important moment in that grand final when the little master <laughs> obviously landed on his shoulder, and thanks to a very good physio, got him back out there. And uh, oh look, yeah,
1: we strapped him up. I'm not sure what how good the strapping, uh, what it was actually doing, but uh, he was back out there. Um, so yeah, <laughs> it was very courageous to get back out there.
0: They did a good job. Nice work. Now. Um, I guess, uh, so say you obviously put this player back out, but generally speaking, what what might some of our early management stuff be around uh, this injury, whether we're, we're sort of looking at it conservatively? Would you run off and image that early or are you sort of getting a guide on where they're at and maybe just managing them week to week in a physio sense and seeing where they're
1: at? Well, obviously, yeah, in professional sport, um, we you know, people sneeze and you and you image them. So um, you're generally going be, to be imaging that. Um, in terms of, I guess, early management, for a posterior dislocation, it's going to be a little bit different to your anterior dislocation in terms of the aggravating factors. So, you're going to be looking to avoid that mechanism of injury. So, anything, uh, things that can often irritate these shoulders uh, are things that for your anterior dislocation shoulders. Um, things that those types of shoulders actually like. So your four-point and your kinetic closed-chain exercises um, and your progressions in a flexion plane, um, which your anterior dislocators really like because they cause a nice compression around that cuff and humeral head centering, and you can actually progress them quite nicely through that. Your posterior dislocators often don't like that because it replicates that same mechanism. So you've got to approach it in a little bit of a different way uh, in terms of those early management strategies. Um, So rather than looking at flexion, um, type activities, you're going to actually, you could then push that out into an abduction plane for your posterior dislocators to look at your, sort of your closed chain kinetic exercises. So getting things going through that way, and really the end result is the same, but it's how you're going to get there is going to be a little bit different to your anterior dislocators.
0: Say, um, We've sneezed, as you said, and you've imaged it because we've been doing that with uh, lots of the athletes. What sort of findings do we often see with these type of posterior dislocations, um, labral pathology and that sort of thing?
1: Yeah, so you get your, your, your posterior labral um, tears um, and commonly on your anterior dislocations, you're going to get uh, a, a hillsax lesion on your head of the humerus okay, and a, a bank lesion, which is the antero-inferior labral lesion or bony bank lesion. Um, and your posterior dislocators generally get that reverse okay so um, they get that on the back of the glenoid and they can often get a reverse heel sac lesion um, and early on these can often be often be missed um, in normal clinical settings um, even when they're x-rayed because it can look like the shoulder is still located um, within um, the the socket uh, and a I guess one of those early telltale warning signs when you're looking at those AP x rays is the light bulb sign, um, where the head of the humerus actually looks a bit like a light bulb rather than um, where it should be sitting because it's actually internally rotated and it's just sitting on the back of that glenoid. So, there's some of the common in imaging findings that you're going to find with those posterior dislocators.
0: We've probably read most literature around the anterior dislocations and the high chance of recurrence, especially in the younger population. Uh, and if they want to continue playing contact sports, it's generally recommended that they may get a stabilisation uh, at some point. Where does it sit here with a, a posterior instability or a posterior pathology that we're talking about there that we're seeing on imaging?
1: In terms of instability and dislocation in the shoulder, um, it's still in those same brackets in terms of your indications for surgery when you're looking at um, risk factors, are age, so young age, below 25 years of age, male and um, playing contact sports so as you alluded to your young contact sports um, that have had a traumatic mechanism of injury um, where you've dislocated your shoulder and requires a relocation that's a high functional demand for a shoulder and our literature shows that you're going to have high recurrence rates uh, with those types of shoulders unless you get those surgically fixed Um, so higher recurrence rates than if you just went with a conservative option
0: Okay, so so Hamish, we're getting um, these guys in a professional setting will generally probably operate on these because uh, that's the nature of their sport. Um, what would our decision making be around more your amateur athlete that you know still has to work full time but is playing sport or rugby on the weekends? How important is surgical management for them?
1: Look, it's I think it's it's equally as important could be because you've got to look at a shared decision making model and present that person with the evidence so that you can make a, a decision going forward so that they can make a decision going forward. So if they are a young, um, young athlete playing in a collision sport um, and they've had a traumatic shoulder dislocation, then they're going to have a lower chance of recurrence if they do proceed with surgery. That doesn't mean that they can't um, go conservatively and still have a successful outcome. Um, there's a systematic review done a few years ago that showed some moderate quality evidence that 47% of primary dislocations um, can go conservatively and have a, a, a reasonable outcome. Um, so the things that you want to you want to know are they a um, are they a manual worker? Are they an overhead worker? Um, so are they going to be using their arms in their in their job a lot? Um, uh, have they have they actually started or tried a uh, a reasonable rehab process? So along that decision making spectrum, um, you're looking at okay, are they going to be successful or are they going to fail? So you got to know have they gone through a good robust rehab program that same as if you've gone through surgery, okay, and you're getting them back up to those late stages of rehabilitation. Um, have they gone through that? Um, have they failed at some aspect of that, which could then indicate them needing to go on and have surgery? Are they having ongoing mechanical symptoms such as um dead arm episodes, loss of strength or power? Um and do they have ongoing apprehension again despite having good rehab? These sorts of things will then start looking at okay, well maybe You do need surgery for this to be a successful outcome for you, but if you can go down that conservative track and those things aren't a problem, then absolutely you can have a good outcome. Um, Also, just looking at, in terms of prognostic factors uh, around the shoulder, a lot of our prognostic factors do lie in the psychosocial domain. So you've got to look at, um, do they have high levels of um, fear avoidance and pain catastrophisation and low levels of self-efficacy? Because they are associated with poor outcomes with our shoulders so you've got to make sure that you're looking at that person as a whole not just at okay will this will this shoulder be successful or not
0: now, there's a really important point here that Hamish wanted to emphasise, and, and it's something he didn't actually talk through in the podcast. So, he was really keen for us to convey convey this post the initial recording, and that's really based around those patients that are multidirectional instability, um, whether bilateral recurrent inferior capsular shift or a traumatic instability. This population generally it doesn't do well with surgery uh, as initially intended within the classification that he talks. So a conservative pathway here is, is always best. A further classification system, the Stanmore classification um, stratifies it into three groups, the relationship between trauma, structure and muscle patterning. In short uh, group one relates to a traumatic dislocation and structural failure. Group two with structural laxity uh, that can predispose them to instability with or without trauma and group three to muscle patterning issues causing instability and resting subluxation. Surgery is indicated in group one, but only considered in group two with structural failure and those who have failed a really good rehabilitation program. These notes I will place in the show notes for you to read along with an article uh, and a diagram further emphasising this classification model that Hamish is is talking to. Again, he really wanted to emphasise the fact that uh, when talking about the surgery, that the management for those patients that have multidirectional instability is different and that you know, further uh, decision making is, is really important around that process. Thank you to Kangatech for the support of this podcast. For those who don't know, Kangatech is an Australian sports technology company originally born out of the North Melbourne Football Club in the AFL. Since releasing its second generation technology in mid 2019, the company has seen significant growth with their technology now used by some of the world's highest profile sporting teams across many codes such as the NFL, NBA, NHL, NCAA, EPL of course the afl the kt360 testing and training platform consists of a portable adaptable fixed frame dynamometry system that allows for accurate and reliable measurements of isolated neuromuscular strength endurance and control the advanced software analytics allows sport specific profiling to understand both injury risk and guide appropriate interventions accompanying the kt360 software platform consists of both the testing and training modules so the athletes can work on training stimulus such as a control, strength, hypertrophy, endurance, pain modulation and also time and attention. For further information on Kangatech head over to their website at kangatech.com that's k-a-n-g-a-t-e-c-h or you can email them at how at (laughs) kangatech.com. So we're moving through the surgical process, and we want to go through some some rehab and some of our early targets and and things like that um, that we'll chat through very shortly. I guess uh, the difference between doing an anterior stabilization and a posterior most of us will be in tune with probably the precautions and early operative, post-operative rehab for an anterior dislocations. What's what's different for the posterior repairs?
1: So just like for your anterior repairs, um, the surgeon doesn't want you getting them out into an abducted, externally rotated position any time too soon um, that's going to then pull on that repair too much. So there's a fantastic article done around that by Joe Gibson back in 2016 where they did accelerated uh, return to play after Bankart repair lesions in 34 football athletes. Um, Now, obviously, they were anterior dislocators. But to give you a rough idea in terms of getting those players up to speed because her... Uh, her average return to play time was about 11 weeks. They were able to restore their their flexion range by about five weeks and their full external rotation by about six weeks, okay, in order for those players to come back that quickly. In terms of a posterior dislocation, you're still going to have to look at gaining those ranges of motion, those strength, but the things that you want to avoid early with these patients uh, are loading it into a flexed, internally rotated, and adducted position. So it's often that mechanism of injury, um, which is going to then push on the repair. So the key, I think, the key thing from Joe Gibson's study was that she had very good relationship with the surgeons, so that she had a safe zone, so that they could actually get that patient out of the sling very early and get their arm moving within the safe zone, where they knew that they weren't going to be tugging on that repair um, and compromising it. So it's the same with the posterior dislocation. So you want to avoid Those closed-chain exercises early where they're going to be shearing through the back, okay, so you're going to be having to look at more um, when you're starting to introduce those types of exercises, more in an abductive plane. But in terms of your range of motion and your passive range of motion and leading into your active and active-assisted ranges of motion, um, generally it's going to be a fairly similar path line.
0: All right, so we're moving through our rehabilitation stage and and you mentioned at our course we'll talk through some of those middle to late stages of rehabilitation, a little bit of prescription. What are some of the keys, like if we talk through maybe just one or two sort of really key components in that mid-stage that you're looking at, both type of exercise and and what sort of targets are we looking at through that early phase that you think is some really clear um, expectations on on an athlete?
1: Yeah, so I guess if we're looking at when we start to actually have to load load the shoulder and looking at function of the shoulder, I try and simplify it in terms of the shoulder has to push and pull with elements of rotation. So that's generally how I address it. I do try and address it as much as I can from a, I guess, a a kinetic chain element so that you're getting the kinetic chain to help to um, unload the shoulder, so to speak, but also recruit those muscles in a normal movement perspective rather than training muscles. Um, Obviously, early on in our rehabs post op we always look at, okay, well, we've got to get some external rotation, internal rotation strength, Um, And then we've got to get flexion and extension and those sorts of things. But as we know from, say, Karen Jin's studies on EMG research, looking at the posterior cuff and the anterior cuff, our push activities preferentially target the posterior cuff, whereas our pull activities preferentially target the anterior cuff. So I think there's lots of ways that we can target shoulders without having to look at just isolating things. So I do look at trying to, rather than doing, say, like a wall push-up or something like that, I do look at trying to do something like a step and punch where you're incorporating uh, the glute, working some rotation through your thoracic and getting some movement through that body to facilitate that shoulder to work in a normal way that the brain recognises um, rather than trying to break it down, which sometimes can make it a lot harder for that shoulder to work if if that makes sense. So in order that I've got some confidence that the shoulder is ready to do that, often our pull activities are a lot easier for the shoulder to tolerate before you're looking at push activities. Um, So you want to have a comfortable and fairly normalised cuff uh, in neutral before you start those so that just means that they've got to be able to tolerate some cuff loading in neutral it doesn't mean they have to be strong in a neutral position it just means they have to be able to tolerate that within normal parameters and that gives you some confidence that you can start some push-pull uh, and then I look at moving up into overhead pull overhead push and then out into um, those uh, I guess, for risky positions, so for your anterior dislocators out into that apprehension position, for your posterior dislocators across into those internally rotated, flexed and adducted positions. So looking at gaining, you know, normal function, functional strength through range before then starting to look at um, power, plyometric, uh, perturbation, reactionary type drills.
0: So you're bringing in your push and pull, Obviously, when you feel like they're, they're tolerating load in that cuff time frames give or take, what are your expectations on that? Just give our listeners a bit of a, a guide on when you're often starting, You, you mainly you're pushing because I know some often will, will hold pushing really, really late and, and probably unnecessarily.
1: Well, Absolutely, and obviously it's, it's surgeon-dependent as well. So the surgeon's got to be on board when they're happy with you starting on um, some loading-type activities. Um, but as I said, if I'm... If I can have uh, so the patient uh, doing external rotation exercises and a fairly normalised cuff in a neutral position, that gives me confidence they're okay for some push because the external rotators are preferentially used with push activities. Um, it's not always a blanket rule. Um, as we know, shoulders can be a tricky joint, and we've seen um, uh, you know, in a lot of our athletes, shoulders are a type of joint that can really uh, compensate under duress. So if you look at, I've seen... Um, high-level, wallaby-level um, rugby players with auxiliary nerve palsies and they've got no deltoid, yet it doesn't change in terms of their shoulder function out on the field um, and in terms of their gym function, they've got 80%, 90% strength um, and obviously we've seen that with suprascapular nerve palsies. Um, I've seen a few with uh, coming back from scapular fractures that have got still quite weak external rotation because of a scapular, of, of a suprascapular nerve palsy, um, but they've got normal function and it doesn't impede them on the field. So th- that's one of the tricky things I do find with shoulders is, is that it's not just tick this box, then tick this this box, and then move through it. You can have a number of moving targets at the same time. Um, so unfortunately, there's not the uh, the nice graded progression that we can do with certain other things.
0: Yeah. And, and on that greater progression, moving again, people probably holding off a, a long time before sort of pushing overhead. And you mentioned your overhead pulling into your overhead yep. pushing. Do you want to give us a couple of examples of type of exercises you're, you're doing there and, and how you bring that in?
1: Uh, yep. So overhead pull, um, I generally start with a banded overhead pull whether it's a double arm or single arm reason being is because it guides that movement. Um, And it's a light uh, resistance up into that outer range and a heavier resistance when it's down by the side, okay? And it actually helps patients to guide that movement into a full upward rotation, all right? And that's one of the the key things that we're often looking at with shoulders um, is guiding that scapula into a nicely upwardly rotated position for function because as soon as you start to lift that arm, you need that shoulder blade to move into an upward rotated position, so you need to train that. Uh, and I find that's a really nice way to start that. You can also look at facilitating other exercises such as um, rolling a ball on a desk or on the floor and adding squats and those sorts of things to it. Squats or lunges. Okay, so again, that's more I think of that as more of a facilitating type exercise. There's I guess two of the ways that I look at getting people into overhead. And then once they're tolerating that, then I'll start looking at adding some load. And again with your with your push load, once they're tolerating Push loading at a shoulder a shoulder level. I like to go from and again, there's lots of different options and different patients will uh, prefer different options, such as a you know a push up like a bench push up or a or a knee push up compared to a floor press with some light dumbbells um, compared to using a band with a step and punch. Um, and then I often like to go to more of a 45 degree angle, so looking at something like a landmine. So again, you can then facilitate that shoulder to work by getting the patient to to lunge and press almost, okay? Or similar to say like a, a wall slide where you're sliding um, a towel up a wall and you can get the patient again to lunge and step up at the same time. So that helps to facilitate that movement. Um, and then once you're, you're happy with that, then they often just then drop into some loading exercise after that, something you know, simple dumbbells overhead and those sorts of things.
0: It'll certainly be good to sort of see you work through that. Um, I can see you obviously on a video here doing some demonstrations, and I'm sure it really helped for listeners to visualise that. Um, yeah. Down the track, seeing you take us through those progressions, That sounds like a really nice way to um, move through the rehabilitation process. Maybe we just touch on a little bit. You, you talked about there. We've uh, gone through those stages. You, you touched on before your speed and power and plyometric. What are your sort of what are your thoughts around this, and how do you bring that into play? What's important and what's not?
1: I guess I look at, are they an overhead athlete or are they a contact athlete? And they'll take me down some different pathways in terms of what types of um, forces they're going to need because your overhead athletes are often um, repetitive motion and and skill and precision-based, whereas your contact athletes you're looking at more um, trauma, uh, lots of unanticipated forces. So you've got to prepare the system to be able to take force uh, and absorb force um, when it's not prepared for it. So that's all your perturbation-type training. Uh, When somebody is comfortable doing some some normal push, okay, and they they don't have to be back to normal strength, but they're tolerating normal push, then I will start looking at um, some push type. Uh, power and reactivity and in terms of your reactivity you can start that very very early just with you know ball juggling throwing balls against the wall Um, as soon as I start push-pull activities uh, with an athlete and they're tolerating that I'll get them to start skills so whether you know in in a professional sport setting you're there on the field with them um, and they're watching training and that sort of thing so they can be doing handballs or passing or you know catching Um, so and that's all very safe because it's hands down by the side so as soon as they're tolerating that, they can actually start some of those reactivity drills, and that makes that ladder end so much easier. Um, but in the clinic, it's a little bit harder, so I like to make sure that people are tolerating it. Take it through, take it, take them through it in the clinic, all right, and then give it to them for homework. So anything that we do in the clinic, that'll be their homework. Um, so whether it's um, you know your simple um, drop catches type things for your overhead athletes, but, which is another really nice um, just reactionary drill. So whether that's against the wall or lying prone and. And catching a ball um, compared to um, some simple, really you can start nice and easily with a double arm med ball throwdown. Okay, that's an off, often one that I start with in terms of a power exercise, because they can go as hard and as fast as they like. So often start nice and slow and they're almost dropping it. And you watch, they just start to build momentum, and by after the time after the time they've done two to three sets of five got a lot more confidence and you can see that they're, they're starting to actually move. And then I move into sort of push and pull type power activities as
0: well. As we're coming through that sort of phase and we're talking, you've obviously worked with these contact athletes and if we're referring to a, a contact athlete for this moment um, rather than an overhead athlete, such as a tennis player for instance, do you have any really key benchmarks or something you really need to have down pat from a, whether it's your strength measurements or, or any other type of metric before we start bringing them into some of that contact work? Or are you just sort of getting a feel on where they're at from where their capacity is at before you start giving them some some decent contact progressions?
1: Yeah. You, I, I'd like to test uh, test their calf out in that 90-90 position to so that prone position where you're looking at that ratio of roughly one-to-one uh, and hopefully getting them up around that 20% uh, body weight uh, in terms of strength out in that position. That gives you really good confidence that they're they're good to go in terms of your contact, but. As I said, you can actually start some of those early simple contact drills before they've regained that complete strength out there. Simple things like um, arms by the sides, and little tower wrestles, holding a big Swiss ball and just getting perturbated and moved around. Um, I'll often start those when I'm happy with them tolerating um, push and pull loads. So I don't have a definitive marker. It's more about are they able to tolerate some loading with push and pull? You know, they're, they're... They've been doing that for a number of weeks and it's tolerating they're pulling up fine okay then they can start looking at some little reactionary drills
0: yeah nice now you're you're testing there you're doing that that was prone or supine and at 90 90 testing with a handheld and just maybe talk us through your 20 percent body weight
1: yep so that's uh, in prone um with the arm at 90 degrees uh in a neutral position um and you are looking at uh, a break test uh, into external rotation and a a break test into internal rotation. Uh, And generally from the literature in in athletes, you're looking at a one-to-one ratio um, or an 80% ratio in your sort of uh, normal population. Um, And roughly, you're looking at trying to get that strength up to 20% body weight. So for a 100 kilo person, um, pushing around that 200 newtons. Um, now, caveat there is that's in a fairly neutral position. You also want to be making sure that you're not missing out on the inner and outer ranges as well, okay? Because you will see strength deficits in those areas, um, which have been um, shown in so many, so much of the literature, especially around those overhead athletes. So, looking at that um, 90-90 position as well, which is that most most commonly that uh, that dislocation position.
0: Great little tip there. Around your contact progressions, uh, that later stage stuff, um, you're just building that through. Is there anything particular like that you feel is a must-have in there, or um, things that these athletes generally find that they're they're least comfortable with or least confident with that you think is one of those things that you know is your final bridge towards uh, obviously edging towards more of a return to train or return to play?
1: Yeah, I think one of the things that I guess does get missed is athletes actually doing um, full training in an uncontrolled fashion so people come back into contact and they'll do say some one-on-one grapple uh, and then some one-on-one tackling and they'll start where where the patient is in control and they're looking at doing some simple tackling with an opposition player moving to then getting tackled moving to then sort of two-on-one and three-on-one type situations but uh, often I find that those are done in controlled situations where the player knows what's happening, rather than those uncontrolled and chaos type situations, especially uh, in AFL, which is so important because it's a three hundred and sixty degree nature. Um, so it's that it's ensuring that um, you can start looking at either taking them through it or um, setting them up so that they can do that themselves at training. Um, now, there's, I guess, I don't know if you want to. There's a whole a whole battery of, uh, I guess, recent research looking at um, some markers. Uh, clinical markers that we can start looking at. Um, there's a uh, there's a paper by Margie Olds who's done um, a battery of clinical tests such as the closed kinetic chain upper limb um, stability test and single arm line hops where you've got to um, kneel, have one hand on the on the ground and hop over a line, a certain amount of time, clap push ups. Um, so uh, that helps to start giving you some guidance around some good reliable functional-type tests that you can do in the clinic. Um, Ben Ashworth's work um, on out-of-range isometric strength Uh, and rate of force development. Um, Now, obviously, you need force plates for those, um, where he's looking at uh, lying players down uh, in in an I position, in a Y position, and in a T position, uh, and testing that strength right out into those outer ranges, which is often the positions that players get themselves in out onto the field. Um, So you've got to make sure that they've got strength out in that position, Uh, but not only strength, they've also got to be able to um, harness that strength in a very short period of time, which is your rate of force development. Um, which we'll probably do a little bit of um, up at the uh, at the conference uh, in October. Um, so, if you're fortunate enough to have those types of force plates, then um, which we are, um, then that's a fantastic resource um, because you can also use that for um, things such as a, a counter movement jump, um, push up, or a drop jump or a press jump, um, which is some of uh, Adele Fanning's work that you spoke to. Uh, I think it was last year. Um, where she's looking at, um, again, the reliability around those types of tests. So I think in terms of for our contact sports in the last decade, um, there's been a whole heap of, um, I guess, research and testing done to try and give us better clinical markers to get an idea of, okay, have they achieved some symmetry in terms of outer range? Are they able to harness that power and strength in outer range positions in in a quick way? And do they actually have power and how do we measure that? Um, I guess the next step with that sort of stuff is, okay, how does that relate to somebody that's injured uh, and then returning to play outcomes? So that's the sort of thing that I'm really interested in um, and looking at collecting a little bit of data around that too. So they're the sort of things, I guess, that I look at in the clinic to give myself some confidence and to give the player some confidence or the or the patient um, that they're, they're, um, they're, they're going to be okay to get back into training. And it's also good for them because they can. I'll try and weave those in as soon as I can because they obviously want to improve. It motivates them, okay, and um, it helps to give them some goals and something to focus on rather than oh, just go and try some tackling.
0: Uh, spot on, mate, and a nice plug back to our, one of our prior podcasts with Adele if you wanted, anyone wanted to tune in there and, and there's some resources there around some of those force plate uh, tests that she has looked at in recent studies. You did mention uh, a little bit there that one of the sort of errors uh, will often be is is not enough of the uncontrolled training. I guess if we look at across the whole scope of some of the rehab aspects that we talked about, is there often some of those common errors that you see other than that that we just think uh, that's, you know, we just can't be missing that or or something that's maybe not fully cleaned up that you you notice um, and advice to our listeners?
1: Yeah, I guess it's looking outside the shoulder because what we do know from the literature around shoulders is the rest of the body has such a, a, an impact on how the shoulder functions. When you look at all of your overhead literature, um, you know, past history of injury in a lower limb, um, a, a reduction in internal rotation of, of, of the hip, um, hip hip weakness, uh, 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 core weakness, they can all impact on shoulders and, um, I guess, have the propensity for shoulders um, to have a greater incidence of injury. So looking at those kinetic chain measures are, are really important as well because I guess I've really focused in terms of this talk on, on the shoulder. The other things I do like to look at are a counter movement jump um, because that gives a, a nice idea of how the, 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 the lower body is functioning um, from a power perspective. Um, and there's some correlation with, um, say, tackling ability um, and, you know, throwing velocity and those sorts of things from a counter movement jump Um, you can also look at some simple capacity measures so side planks um and uh you know front planks looking at you know how long they can hold them for Uh, and again there's simple things in 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 the rest of the chain such as you know there's some nice um, normative data around um single leg calf raises and um the impact on, on injury around those sorts of things. So, looking outside the shoulder and going down the chain and making sure that, that you haven't missed anything down through there, I think that's really important. Um, but again, I'll heart back on to, to function as well, um, making sure that you understand the sport and the demands, and making sure that that, that athlete or that, that patient um, does have a greater progression back through those stages, back into uncontrolled and chaos type situations.
0: We appreciate the support from West Coast Health and High Performance of this podcast. Chris and the team at West Coast Health and High Performance bring an elite sport environment and facilities that are accessible for the general population. Located at the brand new center for the West Coast Eagles in Lath Lane, they have plenty on offer, including expert physiotherapy care led by specialist sports physio Chris Perkins, occupational therapy and nutrition consults, advanced testings such as a DEXA, VO2, and a Biodex for all the muscle strength testing. Uh, West Coast Health and High Performance is certainly the go-to for any sports physio performance requirements in perth chris and the team also available via telehealth for any of our international listeners so for more information on west coast health and high performance hit up westcoasthealth.com.au to learn more having not really worked in rugby where i know they're fantastic tacklers if if you're getting someone within a clinic or a younger guy uh, either recurrent episodes or you know, shoulder issues, is, how important is tackling as a technique and is there scope within that? Obviously, it sort of fits outside of physio's realm usually. Do you ever engage someone who uh, coaches tackling or anything like that to, to help these type of guys? Yeah,
1: uh, it's a really good question because it's a skill. It really is a skill and it's about getting your body in the right position. Uh, and I've got some fantastic footage that I have used in lectures in the past of um, some great tacklers such as Matt Tamua um, who – Uh, Gets himself in such great positions and you can see that the guys that do that are so effective in in creating hits The power is harnessed from the body and basically the shoulder is the output So you don't want to be in a position where you're having to reach and the power having to come from the shoulder Okay, so you want the power coming from basically the ground up so that normal summation of forces that we've all probably seen that That diagram, when somebody's throwing a ball, that summation of forces from the ground up. It's exactly the same with tackling, but getting themselves in the right position. So the summation of forces are occurring. Um, And again, that comes back to that kinetic chain and being able to use the hips and get underneath. And, yep, I've always deferred back to coaches um, when looking at those sorts of things, and I try and get the coaches in as early as possible. Um, So... They can then start looking at training that skill because a lot of what we see is skill based, um, and they have to train that as a skill. It's not just about the physio saying you've got to then go through these contact progressions. There's a massive skill base there that has to be addressed. And I always put my hands up and say, look, that's I've got I've got a bit of an idea, but you know, coaches have a better idea than I
0: do. Uh, you look like a really well built. I reckon you'd be a really good tackler. You just laid in there, hard nut. we'll get you, Mate, now, <laughs> all right. Well, Hamish, um, mate, it's been fantastic chatting, and uh, picked up lots of great little insights and tips. And as we mentioned, for those who are keen to sort of learn more, have a look on the website for our for our course that's coming out. and Virtual access is available for that Upper Limb Arabian Sport course in the Gold Coast. And, and Tim obviously is, is part of a huge, uh, fantastic team from Elite Sports uh, Physio in Canberra, uh, working with Tim McGrath, Craig Purdoms working there, and Martin Wallen amongst. Others, so it must be a fantastic sort of clinic to work at and, and to share some knowledge. And all the physios there must be um, pretty wrapped there working in that environment.
1: Yeah, um, we've got a great team down there. We've just been so fortunate to um, to have Craig and, and Martin join us over the last few years. Um, the staff, you know, they, they love having them around, and, and Craig's such a uh, He's a great educator and he loves to to educate to the the next young up-and-comers. So um, we're very fortunate we've got a great team and some great resources down there.
0: Beautiful, mate. Well, uh, again, thanks very much for your time. Look forward to seeing you in the Gold Coast and um, we'll chat to you soon. Thanks, mate.